welcome to Pure Nonfiction, the podcast interviewing documentary filmmakers. I'm Tom Powers, the documentary programmer for the Toronto International Film Festival and artistic director of Doc NYC. On this episode, I speak with Maxime Pozdorovkin, who's made several films set in Russia. The best known is Pussy Riot, a punk prayer about the dissident performers who went on trial. Maxime's latest documentary, Our New President, looks at the election of Donald Trump through the lens of Russian media coverage. The film also chronicles the increasing state influence on Russian television. The Kremlin take over Russia's last independent television network. Many here fear it marks the beginning of the end of Russian democracy. Our new president started as a short film for Field of Vision, the company led by Laura Poitras, and you can watch that version for free online. Maxime expanded it to a 70-minute version that is now touring film festivals and will be released later this year. We sat down in March when I hosted the film at the Miami Film Festival. Maxime begins by describing his own journey from Russia to America. I was born in Moscow, and uh, when I was about 10 years old in 91, my mom got a job to work at the UN, and she did like women's reproductive health in the developing world. And so we came over thinking that we were coming over for about two years, but then that job got extended, so we stayed. Uh, we sort of stayed, and then the Soviet Union collapsed. So it was very strange because we left in February of 91. Hmm. And then everything, and strangely, everything, the, the coup took place on, on my mom's birthday on August 19th, 1991, six, six months later. Uh-huh. But my mom really loved her job, and so we just continued and kind of... So you weren't a family necessarily like fleeing. uh, No, no, no. It was sort of. It it was strange. Yeah, my mom was one of the first kind of people who was. You know, she was just a a researcher. I mean, she, uh, but who was hired out of the Soviet Union before it collapsed, and it was sort of a miracle that she got the job in the first place. Hmm. Uh, And. So you came of age in uh, in the United States and. Uh, you know, at what point did you start thinking about like, doing work in, in Russia? Well, I think it, what happened was because kind of Russian culture and like living in Russia was something that was taken away from me. It was always important for me to preserve it. So I think even in university and when I started to kind of fall in love with film and then also in grad school, I just always wanted to have it be a part of my life. So I was always interested in it and and kind of inevitably some creative endeavors led me there and then you know I ended up making these films there so for me it was kind of I didn't want to lose it entirely because I had seen so many kind of immigrants that came to America about the same time that I did and you know they they lose the language they lose a lot of that ability so for me I wanted to to kind of you know to live here and build my life here but I kind of wanted to remain in touch and have contacts there and work with, with people there Maxime's breakthrough film, directed in collaboration with Mike Lerner, was Pussy Riot, a punk prayer, in 2013. 
punk art group Pussy Riot was a collective of women who staged guerrilla performances with anti-Putin lyrics. They were visually striking for their brightly colored ski masks, dresses, and tights. In 2012, three members were arrested on charges of hooliganism for performing in Moscow's Orthodox Cathedral. Maxim's film follows their trial. He describes how he first learned of the group. I guess I became aware of Pussy Riot with the Red Square action. And I just loved the fact that they, to me, felt like that they were they were this continuation of Moscow conceptualism and kind of punk rock, you know, and performance art coming out of like a sort of DIY tradition. And I think that especially in the Russian media sphere, that felt so exciting because there was always this marginal space of dissonant artists, but the sort of the dominant mainstream, sort of the, the culture dictated by television is so, is, so, is so dominant that it's really hard to find those alternatives. So immediately, like, I was excited by the possibility of, of sort of young people in Russia who are into the kind of similar things that I was into. And so I wanted to, um, to sort of to know more. And I happened to be in Moscow d- during their trial. Hmm. And so I went... Coincidentally. Co- you, you, coincident- you, you, I was producing a different... I was, I was kind of pre-producing a different film. I did a film called The Notorious Mr. Boot. And while I was there, um, my dad went to the summer house. I didn't want to go to the summer house. <laughs> and so I stayed in Moscow. And then I went... I had a press credential. And then I went to the trial. And I started attending it. And I was fascinated by the fact that the trial was filmed, and it seemed to be filmed from different angles because they, I think they, they had requested a motion for the trial to be filmed, and it was granted. This is being filmed by outside media or it's by be, a court? It was being uh, filmed by this organization. This story will actually come tie into our new president hmm. in a certain way. It's being, it was being filmed by, an independent, by a news agency called RIA Novosti, which, was, which is sort of a Russian equivalent of Reuters or Associated Press. And the thing about Ria Novosti at the time was that they were somewhat independent. Hmm. They, because they were almost, they, were, they didn't aspire to the status of sort of elite television media. They sort of just did, you know, the legal reporting, a lot of the dry reporting. And they were allowed to function hmm. somewhat independently. And so I was able to license a lot of the footage for that film. You know, the heart of that film, when I was watching the trial, I was like, this is so fascinating that this is being prosecuted. Like the, the idea of this sort of show trial p- playing out in a legal context with witnesses and, and offended parties and all these things is so fascinating that, you know, I wanted to work with this material. So I reached out and I was able to license that trial material and I wanted to build the film around it. At the very end of the process of cutting that film and ending that film, it was announced that Dmitry Kisilov, um, who's now sort of the head of all Russian media and he's the most popular news host in Russia, was being that there that all the media agencies, all the sort of Novosti and a lot of a lot of these kind of were being consolidated into one giant entity called Russia Today, which is not RT. It's it's a slightly different entity. It's not uh-huh. the green label. It's just it's called Russia Today. Russia Today, and. This sort of blowhard, Sean Hannity-like guy was being put in charge of all of it. So I realized that, and, and we quickly kind of finished all the paperwork and were able to license that footage in time. I've spoken to people who tried to license and access that footage later on, mm. and 
they were given a sort of hmm. they were not allowed to do it. And this was a, in you know literally a matter of weeks. Wow. So this happened. was like it's in 2013 when yep. you were uh, doing that. Yeah, this was end end of tw- yeah, it was end of 2013, right at, right at the trial. So you described being fascinated watching the trial. You know, where did you as you were watching the trial? Where did you think it was headed? You know, it it was a tough thing because I was around and I was filming with a lot of activists. And so when you're filming with activists, there's a certain kind of constant state of hyperbole around. So there was kind of constant this sense that they were going to, that they were going down and that they were going down for seven years. And so that was sort of my immediate reality while making the film. Mm-hmm. And so, so then you kind of end up, it's almost like watching a sports match that's unpredictable because you sort of end up ro- rooting for, you know, for the underdog and for the for the ch- faint possibility that, let's say, Western media attention or any of these other factors w- would swing it in some way, and maybe it did, and maybe it didn't. You know, they ended up getting two two years and then were let go a few months early. Well, so th- that leads me to ask: You say that you're kind of surrounded by an activist community. Do you feel like you were part of that the act that activist community? Did you feel like you were kind of working on behalf of uh, of Pussy Riot? Well, see, that's my kind of temperament is not that of an activist. I think I, I sort of I'm much more of an observer, and being around that, I had sort of this formally and in terms of the storytelling, I had this choice. Well, I knew that the majority of the film I wanted to be about the the three main girls who were on trial and their statements, so I wanted to build the film around there, and I had room for effectively one parallel storyline, and I had a choice in the material that we had between. Um, between making that storyline about activists and then making it about uh, these orthodox, they're sort of like biker priests, for people who have seen the movie, they'll remember, that that turn into, they're sort of a bizarro world pussy ride and that they stage all these as sort of holy acts and burn posters of Madonna mm-hmm. and do these um, absurd things. And so I had this choice of whether that second parallel storyline should be about, and that choice came down to interpreting whether pussy riot was sort of the end, was sort of a new stage of a more res, of a resurgent protest movement, or whether they were sort of the last dying embers of a protest movement that started in response to the parliamentary elections and the massive fraud and all those things. And my intuition at the moment was that actually it was the latter, that these kinds of conservative, radical, nationalistic voices were actually becoming more prominent around this time. And in many ways, Pussy Riot, they didn't obviously trigger it. They were used in this, but the patriarch and Putin and a lot of people used it to sort of to ramp up the moralistic, nationalistic fervor, which then naturally continued into Ukraine and and, and everything else. So that was sort of them. Um, so I, I didn't feel And looking like, back, you feel like yeah. that's what happened. Yeah, and I feel like that was actually kind of historically, because you know a lot of times when you're making these movies in the moment, about what's happening in movies about politics, you do have to kind of make these interpretive gestures. And I think that that one is one that we got right in, in the sense that it's, that's basically what happened. And, but being, coming back to your question, you know, being in the activist midst, it's, first of all, it's very hard to not be swayed by that energy because it's very exciting and, and it's also sort of earnest. And, and so much of kind of documentary feeds on that kind of, you know, energy. Well. I mean, also the members of Pussy Riot themselves who are on trial are inspiring women. I mean, exactly. incredibly brave, incredibly eloquent, 
it, you know, it, the more you get to know about them, the more impressive they seem. In fact, I think if you just when I first encountered them, just as images on TV and like this kind of you know punk rock um, look about them, I didn't realize how much depth there was to that. And I, and I think that a lot of that was actually created by them. The fact that the media coverage. It, w- it sort of both played to their favor and to, and it was a, a sort of a disservice simultaneously. The fact that they were covered primarily as musicians kind of downplayed them because it kind of it trivialized them, making them sort of these, you know, punk rock girls that just wanted to do something punk for the fuck of it, you know. And um, and they were so much, both so well educated and so thoughtful about the stuff that they were doing, and they really saw themselves as part of an artistic tradition. And I think that, that you know, and, and that really came out in the, in the trial, and that's what was also so fascinating, the way it tapped into the history of all these kinds of dissident trials throughout, you know, from Stalin's period up through the 60s and 70s with a lot of the dissident writers from that time. So not long after the film was finished, they were finally let out of jail a few months short of their, uh, of their two-year sentence in the lead-up to the Sochi Olympics. Uh, so the perception is that they were being let out to kind of clean up the, the image of, uh, of Russia. Um, I remember reading that you had gone over there for, to do a screening with them after they had been uh, let out of jail and, and met some resistance to that screening happening. Can you describe what yeah, happened? Yeah, yeah. So, right right after Nadia and Masha returned to Moscow from the, their places of imprisonment, the Gogol Center, which uh, which is an independent kind of radical theater, it's one of the kind of more radical theaters in Moscow, decided to put on a screening of the film with me and and Nadia and Masha uh, present. So I arrived in Moscow on Friday night, and I, you know, for the first time, I met these people about with whom I had effectively spent a year and a half making this movie, watching them, and I had had very little contact with them before. And then that night on Friday, there was, via Facebook, an official ban for this screening. Um, an interesting side note about the Google... So the, the, the state of Russia issued was, an official yeah, it ban? Was basically, it's not, it wasn't the Minister of Culture. It was sort of the, the second... He's the Minister of Culture, effectively, for the city of Moscow. I don't know how to translate his title exactly. Uh, but so, yeah, he officially came banned via Facebook, the event, and he reached out to uh, the artistic director of a theater, who was a guy named Kirill Serebrenikov, who's a fairly uh, uh, well-known theater director and film director who's now on, on house arrest mm. for embezzlement mm. because he's staged a lot of provocative uh, shows with gay themes and, and director. And so, so, so he was told to ban, he was privately told to ban the screening. Uh, he then went and publicly posted on Facebook a note saying that I'll only do it if I have it in writing. In other words, if I'm if it's officially banned. That night, Friday night, the the Moscow Minister of Culture writes on Facebook, "You'll have your paper." And then there was a paper issued which sort of stated that the, um, that the film had no did not contribute did not ameliorate society in any kind of productive way. So it was a kind of beautiful artifact of bureaucratic uh, repression. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so that, so that screening was canceled, but then it's been fascinating to observe how even Sidi who was sort of a darling of, um, 
of sort of always the darling of a kind of a progressive Moscow culture has also been stigmatized and now arrested. So, was the film able to be spread just through kind of BitTorrent means or uh, DVD Samizdat or? Yeah, I think that, that that's that's the thing is obviously all these gestures, and I think that at a certain point they also must realize it are self defeating because you know I think shortly after the film was on HBO, it was on. YouTube on basically YouTube with a Russian title mm. and yeah you know and then hundreds of thousands of people watched it that way so it's and then it was always on all the Russian torrents and a lot of those sites a lot of sites I think in the Russian social media site contact to people found it so yeah so obviously it only because immediately it was a news story and so I think it only fanned the flames to a certain extent so what was it like to be meeting these people with whom you had spent several months uh, documenting their story your film was you know one of the like, major touch points for anyone who wanted to learn that story it feels to me like there must be a great sensitivity to encountering them well, I think, you know, I've had this conversation with many documentarians, and there's this, it's very hard to describe the nature of a surreal moment when you've sort of, you know, having worked on the film and edited it, like there were phrases that I knew and there are intonations that I knew so precisely that when you meet this person, you have this bizarre sense that they're going off script that they're not using the words that you know them to say. So it's like it's almost like they have this limited vocabulary of the three hours of footage that I have. <laughs> and when you meet a person that you've spent that much time via their footage in real life and they're slightly different and they deviate, you're just put in this com- – as a filmmaker, you're just put into this baffled state of just kind of observing it from the side. And that naturally sort of matched their state because they had just come out of severe – uh, women's prisons mm-hmm. to be to you know to hundreds of paparazzi. Right. It was that kind of transition. I mean, I guess they knew about it a little bit that the trial was covered, but actually being free and being surrounded by this kind of maelstrom of publicity was also. I'm, I mean, I've talked to them since about it, but you know, it was also kind of absolutely maddening for them. And uh, where is the Pussy Riot group today? You know, I think that they're they're all basically pursuing different projects. Uh, Nadia, uh, I saw her not too long ago in LA. She's mostly doing music stuff. She's collaborating with um, a lot with Dave Sitek from the TV on the radio, and, and so she, you know, she did a, a video about Trump as well. She's done a few political videos, and she's and, she, and she's moved kind of in a stylized kind of pop star direction, like a political pop star direction. Um, Masha has been working with the Belarus Free, uh, free Theater hmm. and doing sort of doing a version of her book as a as a kind of multimedia theater performance, and she's also played in one of their pieces uh, and uh, they're touring around with that a, a bit. And you know, well, Pussy Ride, as I understand it, it, it's a bit amorphous. I mean, there are these the the three women in your film who got prosecuted, um, but there were lots of other members of that group, and and it seemed to me like it was a little bit intentional to, yeah. you know, to let it be a loose collective. You know, that's, I, I've, I've made, I've just been interested in art collectives for, for a long time, and what's, what's funny is that in almost everyone that I've come across, any, everyone that, that has this gesture of radical inclusivity as its founding, as Pussy Riot did, as Vainava group that preceded them did, 
always kind of succumbed to these radical hierarchies and mm. stuff. But yes, yeah, so, but Pussy Riot was founded as the whole idea behind the masks was that it was a kind of anonymity where they would be able to, where anyone could take on that identity and kind of push forward those ideals in politics. So having made this film that w- was banned in a, uh, in a sense, um, did it make it more difficult for you to do work in Russia? No, not really. You know, almost after every screening, both with our new president and with Pussy Riot, I would always get the question of whether um, whether I felt, you know, it's a kind of standard documentary question of whether you feel safe going back to the country. And the thing that I always say is that the thing about kind of autocratic governments is that they're repressive in, un- in unsystematic ways. Mm. And that's the point. That you don't that it's not actually a predictable pattern of behavior, a pattern of of punishment, because that kind of creates the climate of self censorship, and that's a very real kind of effect of control. So, no, you know, I mean, I have family there, my dad is there, so I've gone back, and you know, I've made movies there, so nothing has happened. I don't know if that will continue to be the case, but it's, it, it, I I just know how foolhardy it is to try to be predictive or with, with these kinds of things, because that's precisely the point of how that, these kinds of regimes work. Maxime's new project, Our New President, takes a different approach from his earlier work. The film is largely constructed with clips from Russian television covering the U.S. presidential election. They range from cartoon crazy to seemingly credible. The station Russia Today has a broadcast stream in English and its segments spread via YouTube, Facebook, and other platforms. The slick production values might be mistaken for CNN or BBC, but the content skews in another direction. What has been the biggest scandal in the UK since World War II has now come to the US, and it may involve former President Bill Clinton. As the story grows, it becomes more and more apparent this is not just a story of underage girls. It is the story of a massive pedophilia ring involving some of the most powerful people in the world. Maxime describes how he got started on Our New President. Well, this project came about in two, in two ways. There was two moments. First, there was Trump's election, which is sort of the obvious one. And I had this, I think as, a, as kind of probably many filmmakers did, I had this question of, okay, how do you do this person that's so exposed and has been examined from every conceivable angle. How do you do something about what the situation that we find ourselves in that's different and at least tries to approach it from a different angle? Because obviously I think that the earnest angle, the sort of earnest investigative angle, hasn't necessarily worked and probably contributed to his rise and his his media personality. And and so I kept thinking, it was like, how do you do something about that. And at the same time, our editor, Matvey Kulakov, came back from um, visiting his mom in Russia several weeks after Trump's victory. And at this point, there was, I mean, there was kind of talk of Russia, but it was very, very faint. None of the stuff that we know had come out yet. And so he comes back and he goes, yeah, everyone's, uh, he's very laconic. He goes, yeah, everyone's very excited about Trump. They keep on calling him our new president, our new president. Hmm. So we decided, we're like, wow, that, this is interesting. And uh, and I had actually since working on the Pussy Ride film. Can, can you elaborate do you, do, what people meant by that? Well, they meant, 
a lot of things, and it sort of became the film that they they thought that he was. You know, they were c- consuming a news diet that immediately started feeding them the fact that that it was created that it was sort of elections were fixed by them themselves mm-hmm. and they were touting the influence themselves so you know a, a lot of times when people watch the film they'll say that they feel ridiculous about the length of how many months there were these articles going it's like well is there evidence is there did they right. did they not because here as we show in the film people are sort of gloating about it immediately so we decided okay let's investigate this phenomenon now, and i've always been interested in the way that disinformation and propaganda travels and even in the pussy ride film like i used this montage of federal television in russia because i've always felt you know even dealing with my relatives like what a truly truly corrosive force these kinds of major networks are on Russia on people's kind of political consciousness on kind of even like their moral state not to, not to sound righteous about it but um, and so so I was always fascinated by this and we started digging for basically pieces of disinformation about the American campaign and the way that that disinformation was kind of regurgitated throughout and we wanted to see can you make a movie effectively out of factual television and 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 informational programming without a single true statement. Because it felt like conceptually, if you could do that or even approach to do yeah. that, <laughs> that's something profound about the, the sort of the media landscape that we find ourselves in. And the idea was also, okay, fake news, this thing exists. We know that it's a problem. How do you make people actually feel something about it? Not You mm-hmm. can read about it. You can see a meme that's false, that's making fun of Hillary or... But how do you actually feel something about this reality that we... And so then that's what we tried to do. And one of the things that we learned in the process of gathering this information and kind of an, and, and, and storytelling is that propaganda today is as much about disorientation as disinformation. Hmm. It's creating... And this is what I think that we learned as we were gathering the material, but that's also what's come out in the troll investigation. That's really about turning the internet into this kind of garbage dump of information where people just give up on the activity of, of even trying to figure out what's true. They kind of, as Adam Curtis describes it, they sort of throw their hands up and go, oh dear, and kind of just give up on that process. I want to ask you this about the way Russians are consuming media. Mm-hmm. I had a perception uh, during the days of the Soviet Union when the newspaper Pravda was the main state organ that Russians had grown up to naturally distrust what they read in Pravda. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wonder t- today when when you describe th- that they take in a diet that um, that it seems like a majority of Russians accept uh, that narrative. How does that track historically uh, you know, for a country that for many years was taught to distrust the official state media? Is it a difference that they accept what they watch now? Yeah, that's a great, great question. And, um, and it's exactly – this question is exactly why I wanted to make this into a film, let's say, rather than writing something about it. Or It's completely true that Russians living there – that there's this – kind of much written about doublethink that a lot of times that Soviet, that Soviet people, where they basically had to accept a certain reality, they knew that it was false, and then they had a kind of a parallel reality. So there was this kind of double consciousness that was always at play. And part of that was this pathological distrust of management of all sorts of authority, and that included the sort of official newspaper. Um, 
at the same time, what was interesting was that in the Soviet Union, in terms of visual literacy and in terms of media literacy, when you're consuming uh, it through visual means, the, the techniques were actually quite primitive, if you look at sort of Soviet news. What happens in 91 is that the influence of sort of cable news and, in, and kind of an infotainment and that model comes in f full force, it's adapted, it's taken in. The difference is, is that once Putin consolidates the media, they get a clear directive of how they're supposed to interpret given events. And then they use essentially the same techniques that they learn, editing techniques that they, use, that they see in Western media to sort of manipulate that reality, except they're willing to go to the degree of outright fabrication. And that's sort of what feels different than even something like Fox News. Mm -hmm. So what I've found is that Russians who consume, because television is basically free in Russia, these major channels, they consume an enormous amount of it. And they're, I found, incredibly gullible to the visual means that are, that are used. And then the other point to be made is that, returning to this earlier thing I said about disorientation and the way it works, is actually if you, if you create a population, and this is what we tried to do in the film, because the film is ultimately, Russian propaganda is not as crazy as we make it seem. This is a distillation of it, of those techniques, so to focus people's attention on them. We want the film to be slightly a, a dystopian vision of this, precisely because when you have a fully disoriented public, they're much more gullible already to begin with, because the notion of truth has become so fluid that it doesn't matter. There's this moment in the film that I really like and that I always talk about where a woman introduces Trump as a troubled teenager from Brooklyn, right? And so, and you think about that, why would you, why would you do that? It's not clearly pro-Russian. It's not, it's not really, like, why make that mistake? It's, you know, people have the internet. It's not that hard to do. And the whole point is precisely uh, one of the traits of, pro of, of the kind of, of propaganda and how it works is that it's internally inconsistent, and that's the point. It's high volume, it's multiple channel, and it's, in and in it's internally inconsistent because then people just stop even trying to make sense of it. They kind of just believe it, and they use it as fodder for their own righteousness, for their own argumentation, for talking about the world, but they give up on that analytic process entirely. And that's the real tragedy of all of this. And that's, you know, what we tried to capture. And I think that that goes back, that that, that gullibility was sort of brought on with the new media model that came in in 91. Well, I mean, it's striking to me because I, before watching Our New President, I hadn't taken in that much or any really of like the Russia Today uh, channel. And one thing that struck me was the, the aesthetics of it and uh, and that it was packaged in this sophisticated way that sort of connotes credibility. Exactly. Um, you know, when I think of traditional Soviet television, I think of like a guy sitting behind a desk with low production values, you know, reading something off of a piece of paper. I don't know, even know if that's an accurate representation or not, but that's kind of my, you know, uh, uh, archetypal uh, impression. And, and that has a look that yeah, there's no way I'm going to believe that guy uh, reading paper. But when you turn it into a Western-looking uh, news set with flashy graphics and uh, you know designer suits, it automatically like gains this extra credibility. Yeah, you know, you hit your the nail on the head in terms of what is, to my mind, 
the single most untalked about aspect of sort of a Russian troll farm investigation and what's happened with it. And here's why. There's one factor to all the things that you just said about RT. There's one factor that needs to be added is that they give away this content that has clear production value, as he's talking about, and make it clearly available on YouTube for free in high quality content. You can just download it. You can they have a license that they give it away. You don't have to pay for it. And that essentially becomes the, the fodder for so much of material because it has production values and it can be reused. There's this... Um, statistic that they've always used that I've never quite understood, and Putin himself says it in the, in the movie at the 10-year anniversary of RT. He says that we're the number one TV channel in terms of YouTube views. So it's sort of like, and they have a number that's like it's, it's several billion. And I've never understood, it, it's, it's, it's a little bit of a nonsensical statement, so I thought it was just, okay, like blurbies, but... I think that what it means is that unlike a lot of TV networks that tend to stay proprietary with their streaming services, mm -hmm. Russia Today puts everything on YouTube in good quality. And then a lot of what the troll farm actually does is take this material that, again, has some kind of credibility, if only aesthetically, and then repackage it many, many times with new and more ridiculous headlines. And that's how the material really travels. And very few of those will get that many hits, but eventually they'll get a hit. And the whole point of how advertising revenue works on the Internet is that novelty and new content that's created and uploaded has a chance of competing with entrenched sources like real news sources, New York Times or BBC or what have you. And that's effectively what the troll farm was gaming. And no one is talking about this in a way because there's no way to really restructure the internet revenue structure of, uh, by Facebook or Google or any of these to get rid of it. Like they used it exactly how it's supposed to be used. They just intuited that. And, the, and this is why the film effectively connects kind of old television media and the new sort of what I call 21st century propaganda, which is uh, kind of the things of Troll Farm, because they essentially provide the fodder, the raw material to, to create these memes, to repackage it. And a lot of times what you notice, actually, and when we were digging and finding all these plausibly newsy YouTube channels, like called News from the Truth and things like that, is that a lot of times the headlines didn't have anything to do even with the embedded video mm -hmm. and the report that was in it, or it had very, very faint connection. But the whole point is that it doesn't matter, is that it travels as a headline with a picture. And as long as that picture has some Shows kind up in a Google search. Yep. Our new president begins with a story about Hillary Clinton that dates back to 1997, when her husband was president, before the world had heard of Monica Lewinsky. The First Lady was visiting the Siberian city of Novosibirsk, and she stopped to see a recently excavated mummy. Locals thought the mummy had a curse. Years later, when Hillary Clinton was running for president, a Russian TV report theorized that she was cursed by the mummy. Хиллари Клинтон после встречи с принцессой начались проблемы посерьезней. Муж Билл завел роман с практиканткой Моникой Левински. Maxime explains this bizarre footage. You know, when we started making our new president, we made it first as a short for Field of Vision, and that was about Trump winning and Russia's reaction. So it was a kind of in-the-moment thing, and we re released it sh shortly uh, after we made it. 
And then the Russia story continued unfolding, and so we continued to make this film. And the first thing we realized we had to do is go back and look at the actual campaign and what was happening. And what we realized was that while Trump was very little, was, was discussed very little during the campaign, or much less than you would expect, uh, the denigration of Hillary was so profound and so complete and so thorough, as well as the kind of the, the disparagement of American democracy and the institution of election is, is almost preparing for if Trump were not to accept the results had he lost for what would happen. And one of the things that we found initially was this theory, which was presented in, as, a, as a news report, that when Hillary Clinton was first lady, and this is true, she went to Novosibirsk. And there she went to visit this mummy that had been dug up, who was called the princess. And the locals had apparently said that she should be buried back or anyone that comes into contact with her will be cursed. And the argument was that immediately after visiting the mummy, all of Hillary's problems began. Monica Lewinsky stepped into her life soon after her mental illness, her... Uh, her health problems began making themselves known. And there was a sort of theory about Hillary's inadequacy as a candidate built on the story of the mummy. So we decided that, you know, I mean, partly it's it's almost just showbiz that if you have a mummy in your movie, you have to start it. But you, <laughs> you have to lead with it. But... <laughs> But the other thing is that this is, you know, this is a movie that we're, we're shaping, that we wanted the audience to have some kind of buy-in at the very beginning. So the film opens with this kind of John Carpenter-esque sequence about, that we found in these regional archives. So we, we got it from the regional archives of the actual mummy being excavated, and then we got the original footage of Hillary Clinton visiting the mummy because we wanted this precisely... We wanted that opening precisely for its disorienting effect, for no one to know what the hell is going on. And that a acts effectively as a sort of buy-in into the story. And then you start to see the, the kind of insane news footage and its, and its uh, regurgitation across the Internet. And so, so, so that was the idea, and, then, and there's a reveal at the end that we won't give away. <laughs> um, I want to ask you about the process of compiling all this footage I was just reading a book that's an oral history of The Daily Show, and they talk about the way in, over the years The Daily Show, changing technology made them more and more efficient at uh, being able to gather clips from Fox News or CNN and, um, and reinterpret it uh, for, for their show. And that was fascinating that, you know, at some point they, they just had multiple DVRs running, you know, hoovering up. Um, uh, all the news that was going on. What was your process for accumulating all the footage that you use? We had a whole group of researchers, and we, you know, so we had this idea, so we were also hoovering all this news. We had this idea that the film should be structured about basically be made primarily of three channels. So Russia One, which is the most popular channel in Russia, Russia Today, which is a RT, which is the English language channel, and then NTV, which was a, former, a formerly independent, now party line uh, channel. So we were gathering all these shows. And, and so just to be clear here, 
Are these channels literally state-run or no? I think that uh, how it works, and this actually, uh, to my mind, contributes to the exaggeration and to the degree of fabrication that they go to. I think that, and this is just my kind of understanding from reading about it, I don't know anything specific, but that, and from talking to people who work in Russian media, that there's a kind of general directive for politically sensitive topics of how to interpret it. And then all the local editors and TV producers are kind of go out of their way to sort of to fulfill that mission. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times they overshoot it. And there's stuff that we have in the film that's been post factum scrubbed from the Internet, including some like very offensive racist things, because they realized that, you know, that they overstepped the Mm -hmm. line. So I think that that's the way that it works, that there's a general directive and and some and the channels are nominally not Russian one, but other ones are nominally privately owned. And stuff like that, but they follow the party line when covering. And then a lot of other channels that used to do politics were basically pushed out of political coverage. Mm-hmm. They were allowed to continue existing, but they just didn't do uh, the pr- multiple different pressures just disincentivized right, them. Yeah. So we were just gathering hundreds of hours, and then we were looking for people on YouTube that would film themselves with their television. And were you able to do that gathering from the U.S.? Yes. Or, uh, we, were all, we were all just sitting in Brooklyn. We had about seven or eight people, everyone sta- editing, assembling, gathering, and just assembling this massive archive of disinformation of every kind of falsehood along the way that was perpetrated. And it was fascinating because we were doing this you know, we were doing this in the spring, and most of the investigation and the first investigation results kind of started coming out in the fall. So it was really kind of terra incognita, and especially with finding where the fake news lived on the internet and the way that it traveled was really uh, was really fascinating. And so yes, we were, and our we had this selection pr- uh, criteria where it had to be where we wanted it to be all news f- footage or information TV, but wanted to have false statements. And then we wanted to have that false statement, see if there were people on the internet that took it up and re-released it into the world and kind of regurgitated. And specifically, we were looking for the way that people's thinking is infected by this. So there's there's this boy that congratulates Trump, and he's sitting somewhere in, I imagine, Siberia, where it's minus 27 degrees. And he congratulates him, and then he goes, you have once again proven that a woman cannot become president. And he's about 11 or 12 years old, right? And it's horrifying because that's, that's infested his reasoning abilities. And that's the real danger of all of this. And that's you know why we wanted to make a movie that was, in a sense, so tough to take, because to understand that this is what this creates, and it's this kind of reality. And yeah, it's funny for a while, but then it kind of becomes horrifying. Precisely right. And so we were all just kind of gathering around and looking for these moments that could be revealing in these kinds of ways. And yeah, we have thousands of hours in this huge database. I can never say exactly how many hours because, you know, a lot of these news shows, they'll be like, it will be like a two hour show on a weekly basis, but only, let's say, 15 minutes of that will be about America. So it's always hard to count. So as I wrap this up, I want to ask you about the, the conversation going on now about. Russia and Trump and collusion. Um, you know, there are journalists out there who say we're spending too much time thinking about Russia mm-hmm. to, the, you know, the extent of uh, of ignoring other things that we should be paying more attention to uh, about Trump. What's your perception? My perception is that 
in the current debate, and I mean, in a way, this was the reason for making this movie, is that in the current debate, we're not looking enough at what's structurally happening with our media. And we're not, I mean, we are talking about fake news, but the way that the Russian influence on that and on this kind of disorienting, uh, in, in creating this kind of disorienting atmosphere is, I think, not being grappled with enough. And one way in which it's not being grappled with is, and this is a personal question that I have, so that I don't exactly, that this film is sort of an investigation of, is how do we make, the, how do, what do we make of the fact that someone like RT self-applies the term propaganda? But they don't run from it. They don't deny it exactly. You know, sometimes they do, but sometimes they don't. But they, you know, there, there's a shot in the film. It was one of the few shots that I actually filmed, and it's at the Moscow airport, and it's a it's a billboard for RT that says, you know, keep watching to find out who we're going to hack next. Beware, a propaganda bulwark is at work. And I think that there's a move there that <laughs> that's really. I mean, it's sort of profound, but we haven't figured out what to do with that. When, when people will openly own the fact that this is biased or manipulative, but, but then tar everyone else with the same brush. So what do you do? How do you, because obviously any demarcation, and this is what's being discussed with uh, having RT being classified as a propaganda outlet, right? Well, what does, what does that achieve? Because it also gives a much more, arse, a much more leverage to Putin to kind of to point out the double standards involved in the West, and then to basically to identify the BBC in New and the New York Times as propaganda and having have them register in Russia and do all these things. So I think that, that to me, is the, the big unknown cloud that we should be grappling with a bit more to get clarity on these central issues about collusion. I think that a lot of the debates, I, I mean, a lot of the conversations about collusion, I don't necessarily find that interesting because they all seem to be to hinge on the legal definition of collusion and you know trump or anyone in his party have no ideas about any of those definitions so mm. it's a little bit of a kind of apples and oranges scenario so 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 that's my my general of, of having consumed an absurd amount of fake news in the last year and sat with this material and looked at the way that it worked that I think that we that the well of figuring out how did they how many kind of Twitter bots and how many uh, you know how many people how many users were reached I think that we've kind of exhausted that well numerically and ultimately we're not they're not going to tell us that much it's not going to we're not going to be able to figure out what percentile how much that swung Michigan or anything like that but what we haven't talked about is precisely the more profound corrosive effect that this has on our whole infosphere I want to thank Maxime Pozdorovkin for speaking with me. You can watch the short version of Our New President at fieldofvision.org. The longer version will play at New York's rooftop films on August 9th and be released later this year. Pussy Riot, A Punk Prayer is available on iTunes and other platforms. Thanks to our team, series producer Sarah Modo. Our Miami-based sound recordist, Khalil Bailey, sound mixer, Tom Micah, and web designer, Cross Strategy. Our theme music is composed by Andre Williams, and our executive producer is Raphael Anehausen. I'm Tom Powers. You can follow me on Twitter 
at THOM Powers. I invite you to listen to our short-form podcast, Documentary of the Week, from WNYC. You'll find over 170 documentary recommendations. Pure Nonfiction is distributed by the TIFF Podcast Network. You can read our show notes, learn about live events, and sign up for our newsletter at purenonfiction.net. Thank you.